Welcome to the No Rain, No Rainbows podcast. This is a show about pushing through obstacles and hard times in order to live a happy and fulfilled life. I'm your host, Ted Fayton, and it's a pleasure to have you joining us. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's grow. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the No Rain, No Rainbows podcast. You probably can't hear it, but if you're watching, you can see it. We are in a new setup, and I'm so excited to have this special interview as we are recording this right after the 20-year anniversary of 9-11. And joining me on the call right now, John Sequera, who is currently in Raleigh, North Carolina, while I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. So two North Carolina guys who have both lived in New York on this podcast together. John, man, thanks for being on the call. Yeah, absolutely, Ted. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Before we jump into the subject matter today, and I'm sure with the intro, folks can kind of get an idea exactly what we're talking about here. I'd love to give you the floor really quick to introduce yourself, get acquainted with the guests and the audience, and we'll start getting into your story a little bit. Yeah, sounds good. John Sequera, 42 years old for Aslan Training and Development. We're a sales training and management coaching firm. More importantly, I would argue I'm a husband of 12-ish years and a uh, father to an adorable nine-year-old daughter. And I was uh, working in New York on the anniversary on 9-11. So I worked on the 81st floor of Tower One, which was the first building to get hit, the second to collapse. And I'm not going to tell your wife about the 12-ish years part. <laughs> it's 12 plus a little bit. I don't know yeah. what day it is right now. Yeah. I've been married for two-ish months, so... Oh, wow. You can't itch when it's two months. You can itch when it's 10 plus. Sure. All right. I'll wait till the decade mark to itch. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for being on the podcast. And we are going to jump into your experience on 9-11 before we jump into that day, because as we know, there's a lot of things that lead up to that. And a lot of folks who are listening, they probably know where they were if they are old enough to remember that day. You and I both do remember that day. So starting with the lead up, what brought you to New York and what was that energy like when you got there? Because you weren't in New York too long before that faithful day. You're right. I graduated from NC State in May of 2001 and moved up in June. And so 9-11 was just three months after I moved to the city. What brought me there? Honestly, I'd love to say that I was a highly recruited candidate for some big job. I worked for a fellow company and I just did sales for them. This is really just a vehicle to get me to New York. I'm originally from Northern New Jersey. We moved to North Carolina when I was seven, but we would go back regularly just as long as I can remember. I wanted to live and work in New York and I kind of saw it as almost a rite of passage, an inevitable step of where I needed to spend some part of my career, some part of my life. And so that was really the draw rather than some dream job. What I think was maybe the first job that would have me. And uh, I was excited to move up there for a meager salary that could pay for my portion of converted one bedroom apartment that I shared with a roommate. He lived in the living room with one of those old pressurized walls. And I lived in the actual bedroom. The common area was a hallway. And what is still generously described as a galley kitchen. So that's what I was doing. It was fabulous. I had a great time, but it was a lot of constant activity, uh, social life, young people all starting out. It's a transient city. There's a lot of people who are open to making new friends, experiencing all the city has to offer. And so it was just a super exciting time. I can tell you as somebody who you know, spent a good portion of their young 20s, their lower 20s in the city and had many friends live in the city, it's just an endless list of the people you can meet, the experiences you can have, and really kind of just being 
exposed to so much culture and different personalities. So I don't blame you for desiring that. When you finally got to the city and first few months there, what was the energy like and how did that kind of feed you? I was just drinking it all up. Anything that anybody asked me to do, I would say yes to. Like that movie with Jim Carrey, Yes Man, that was me. You want to go to Broadway show? Yep, sure do. You want to go to a ball game? Sure do. You want to just go sit in the park? I mean, just a very basic, let's take the train down to the park and hang out, have a picnic, and a few people are going to join in, and the group is going to kind of ebb and flow. That's what I was doing. Even some super nerdy stuff, like kind of being a tourist in our own town. I used to love taking the Staten Island Ferry just out. Again, we were not making a lot of money, so that was <laughs> tantamount to a city line crew. So we were just doing that kind of stuff and following which bars, which dive bars, had dollar beer and 25 cent and trying to make our meager salaries stretch as long as they could. You know, we spent a lot of time down at uh, CBGB's before it closed. This is now dating myself, but of course we're talking about a time where I was there in 2001. Just all this confluence of world economy, culture from everywhere. It was just super exciting. And this is the moment really where things kind of take a change because we wake up every morning, we put our pants on the same way. We shower like we do every day. But usually it's something out of the ordinary that happens that makes us remember that a little differently. So let's talk about the week of, the days leading up to 9-11 or even the morning of. I'm sure you probably lived life normally up until this change happened. Looking in hindsight, what were those, let's say, 24 to 36 hours leading up to that moment like in terms of your routine and how you were going about your day? Yeah, that's a great question. One experience really comes to mind in terms of presenting a contrast to how my priorities change very quickly on 9-11 and how they've evolved slowly over time. I had a friend, she was in fashion design school and uh, Parson Institute, and we were down in Soho and we passed by a, a shop that had you know, leather jackets and it was about to get the fall. Let me see if I can get a leather jacket. So I bought one. I wanted a cool black leather jacket, almost like a a blazer cut. And I bought it, got back to my apartment in a different light. That jacket looked less black and almost like a bronzy dark brown. I was annoyed, shocked, and I was trying to see if it was my eyes playing tricks on me. And I was pulling every article of clothing that I had that was black to pit it up against it to see what the contrast was. And I remember my roommate coming in and seeing all these clothes laid out on my bed and say, what exactly are you doing? Are you going somewhere? And when I told him, and almost in a frantic state of, I just bought this jacket, I don't know if it's black or brown. He asked me, is this the biggest problem you have right now? Yeah, I guess it is. I remember even thinking that I should probably feel guilty about that. So there was this kind of awareness that my priorities were not completely where they ought to be. But that was the truth. That was on a Sunday. And then Monday afterwards, went to the office normally. Giants were playing a Monday night football. And the game went into overtime. And so we stayed out a little late. And, uh, and suffice it to say, I was dragging a little bit the morning of September 11th. I'd also... Over the weekend before I went to Soho, I was playing volleyball in Central Park. I turned my ankle like pretty bad. And so I was on crutches for a couple of days leading up to that. This is what my life was. Playing in the park, getting injured, being a dummy, buying a new clothes, worried about if they were the right ones, seeing my friend, being out late, that kind of stuff. So the morning of, just like any other morning, you get to work. How did the day play out? I imagine there was the initial shock, but I guess take us to that moment when the, the plane hit. And I guess what you did immediately following that. 
Yeah. So uh, helpful to know that leading up to 9-11, it was so hot in the city, just oppressively hot. A lot of us would come to the office on the subway. And at the time I lived on the Upper East Side and way kind of the 90s. So it was a 40 minute train ride. And so when we would get to the office in various degrees of undress, before we got dressed for the day, we head into the bathroom and get ready. So that's where I was. When the plane hit, buttoning up our shirts, putting on our tie, fixing our hair, getting less disheveled from a sweaty commute. But actually, this day was not hot, right? September 11th, the day was beautiful. And so we were in the office, in the bathroom, just getting ready. That's when we simultaneously heard and felt the impact. It felt like our building actually ran into something. It was almost this weird feeling. We had collided. There was such a jarring. That was the effect. You know, your mind goes a million miles a minute and runs through all the possibility what that could be. And so I thought initially it might've been a bomb. Thought maybe it was also a local elevator, right? The World Trade Center, like subways had express and local elevators. So I thought maybe a local elevator had fallen from say the 100th floor to the 80th floor, somewhere in that range. Just the visuals of what was going on were piles popping off the walls, the ceiling kind of starting to collapse. We made our way into the hallway after one of our coworkers who grew up in San Francisco told us to get in the doorway, right? That's how you kind of protect yourself in an earthquake. And so that was his best idea. So we were in the doorway and then started heading out the hallway and the walls of the hallway had collapsed in blocking us from getting back to our office, at least initially. But there was smoke and fire on our hallway we're looking around for what to do next, and we were drawn into an office that had been designated, as I recall now, as a place that the floor fire marshal had dedicated for people to meet in an emergency. Went to that office and were told to stay there and that a plane had hit the building. We needed to stay in that office and in the building because at that point, before it was clear that it was intentional, the bigger concern was that shrapnel debris would be falling on people down below. So that was seen as the safest place to be. Were you scared at this time or were you kind of just following orders and just, you know, waiting it out? Yeah, super scared. Who knows what this is, right? For sure, it was in retrospect, in the grand scheme of the orders of magnitude of fear, it was probably lower on that rung, right? I thought there was an emergency in the building, probably the building was on fire, and that any other circumstances is reason enough to be concerned. But looking out the window of this office, we saw debris, you know, papers, office supplies falling out. I remember seeing a woman's shoe kind of fall out of the, down the window. It was bouncing along the window as it fell. That was jarring because yeah. it certainly communicated that at least some human being was affected closely. Yeah. I know shortly after you were able to make a call and I believe, was it with your dad? Yeah. In that office, I tried to call him and just my brain was going kind of a little fuzzy. And so I couldn't remember the number that I've dialed hundreds of times. And so I wasn't able to actually call him until I was down closer to the 40th floor, got out of the stairwell and found an office with a work phone. I wanted to touch on a point where I heard you were saying you went down the stairs, but you went back up. And this is something, the reason I asked if you were scared, because in that moment, when people are scared, they either act in self-preservation or care of others. You're going down the stairs, but you decide to go back up where you encounter a woman in a wheelchair. What made you go back up? I wish there was a complex wisdom-based reason, but really it was 81st floor where we were to the 67th floor down the stairwell. We moved pretty quickly, but at the 67th floor, I ran into my boss, Mike, and 
we compared notes on what was going on. He said that everybody from our office was already out of the building or already below us. We were the last ones in the office. We heard people in the hallway above us. So that would be the 68th floor. And we heard them trying to figure out which stairwell was open. And clearly they weren't finding our stairwell. So we decided to help. Was the decision based on? I think it was really more a necessity. If we weren't going to help, who else was? Candidly, the effort at the time didn't seem that onerous. It was simply go up one half of flight of stairs Mm -hmm. and yell into the hallway the stairwell was open we did that we realized that there were other groups there so we told one group that was closest to us about uh, the stairwell being open they said there were other people behind so we went to go find them now we're kind of running around that floor in different hallways just making sure that everybody who's there knows the way out and that's when we happened upon this office that we could see through glass doors where there was just a group of people standing around. So we got access to that office. And as we were yelling at them to leave, we realized why they were standing around. And what they were doing was trying to figure out how they could all leave together because one of their coworkers was a wheelchair. Surgeon. Yeah. And thankfully you guys were able to get an emergency wheelchair up, get her down. But on the way down was when tower two collapsed, correct? Where were you when that happened? My best recollection is we were probably somewhere in between the 10th and the 20th floor. So we were lower down in the building. I'm trying to think of when the tower collapsed. I think it was 9.59. And that's my recollection. So we were in the building as Tower 2 collapsed and we were almost down. And I remember the feeling of buildings starting to sway and looking up and seeing that one of the doors into the stairwell was just thrown open and there was debris flying into our stairwell. And then shortly after the lights went out. Wow. So now we were walking down the stairs and with nothing guiding us visually other than the luminescent strips on the stairs. Yeah. And for the folks listening who are millennials and they're thinking, why didn't you just pull your cell phone light out? You know, we didn't have those at the time (laughs) that just exist. (laughs) Great point. I mean, cell phones did exist. Mine happened to be in my office. I didn't have my cell phone on me. Cell phone coverage was pretty spot. Mm -hmm. That was another condition made it to where the people in the stairwell with me at the time, we didn't really know what was going on. There were rumors of, I remember hearing the term a kamikaze mission, right? Mm -hmm. That was the word was being thrown around. And we were like, no way, that's not what happened. And we thought if it was, maybe it was some guy with a private plane trying to get back a jilted, you know, his ex-wife or something like that. It was to this scale. Yeah. We didn't know. So surely I didn't have access to cell phone coverage was spotty and cell phones at the time didn't have a flashlight on them. Yeah. We didn't have the iPhones. We had the Nokia's from back in the day. That's right. So you guys get out of the building and this was a moment you talked about when it kind of hit outside of that building. What happened? I know you escorted the lady to an ambulance that rushed off, but now you and your boss are in the street. Tower two has collapsed. You're looking up at your tower. What was that scene like? What'd you absorb and, and how did that stick with you? We exited out of the West Side Highway entrance. Actually, it wasn't the entrance. We had to get out through a window. What we thought was the aftermath was what was in the middle. Debris everywhere. This white dust all over the ground and kind of the waffle-like facade of the building impaled in the ground and kind of destroying other buildings around it. There was a Marriott Hotel next to us and that had a big chunk taken out of it. Uh, and so we're just watching what was going on. We looked top of our building, saw it on fire, saw the flames, saw debris floating down. And what caught my eye was something that looked different than the debris I'd seen ended up being a man, one of the many people jumping from the building to escape the heat and the destruction. And so that was, I followed him down until he passed kind of behind a building. So I didn't see him or really anybody else make impact, but we heard it. And we realized that was a sound that we heard 
multiple times before while we were in the lobby of our building while we were outside and so just the gravity not just one person falling jumping to their death just the fact that they weren't alone and that that was starting to be something that was happening more frequently that was kind of a knock the wind out moment yeah no, i can only imagine now and this is outside of the building you're with the boss and you hear a waterfall or what sounds like a waterfall that could not have been a comfortable feeling i mean you're already on edge your head's on a swivel and then now you hear this rushing water when you're not surrounded by water at all what was the moments after that i remember mike and me trying to figure out where should we go how, how should we get out of here and i remember him looking up at the building i was staring at him looking north and his eyes just got huge and he just began to run and so he was a running back in college so he booked it and i looked up and saw the building started to heal away seemingly right above us so i ran and we ran as fast as we could the reason i was telling you about the sprained ankle rolling the ankle was i remember thinking oh no i'm not sure how i'm gonna run so we started running that way and we found some cover behind a van I jumped behind a van, my boss jumped under a fire truck, and then the debris just kind of enveloped us. I remember breathing heavily, and the debris was in my mouth, in my lungs, and then pitched black and silent for a while. And I thought that was it. That was final prayers and kind of surrender and kind of having a mix of sadness, no longer really fear, but also curiosity of you know, how, what was going to happen next? Like, what would you see on the other side? How do you recover from an experience like that? Like, what are the minutes when the debris clears, the hours afterwards, the days following? How does that recovery start and continue immediately after? There's recovery in multiple, a few different dimensions, right? First order of business was getting physically safe. And so we made our way up to the perimeter of what was now being defined as ground zero, where we were met with first responders and people giving us medical aid. And we were just told to get as far north as possible. So we started walking up down. And that was really the first effort. Called my parents at a service station and uh, my boss and I through the West Village to kind of get away from some of the chaos that was on the West Side Highway. Along the way, a few things happened. At least my emotional reconciliation with the event. Number one is we, when we put Tina, we didn't know this, yeah, who was in a wheelchair. We put her in an ambulance, but we never got her name. And we didn't know if, if the ambulance got away okay. So when we were getting medical aid, some reporters were asking us questions. And we said, look, we don't really want to talk. We've helped somebody down and we're not sure where she is. We don't have her name, but if you could find her, let us know if she's okay. That would be great. And that started this series of interviews. So later on that day, we got a call from somebody who I thought was my friend because we were telling people what had been going on for a while. So he handed me the phone. I told him, and it turns out that was a reporter for USA Today. And so the next morning, the story was in the national paper. Then latter part of that week, we were pushed by magazine and then Good Morning America and then Oprah. I say that because for all that's said about the media driving division or sensationalizing events, for me, having those conversations was very cathartic. Right? It was very cathartic in terms of two things, letting me express how it felt kind of talking through my feelings, but also the interviews we were part of were leveraging our experience as kind of a beacon of hope, a beacon of good, kind of a solve for people who were just rightfully so devastated and confused and scared. That 
kind of persona built by the string of conversations I had with different people in the media, that started to make me reflect on my purpose. How could I serve? How could I be a part of having God, the universe, use me for good? And it became a feeling of, let's say, empowerment calm that also kicked off this motive of seeing what I can do to help other people and feeling the freedom and the empowerment that one feels when you forget about what you get out of an experience or an interaction and instead focus on serving somebody else. That was one of the first times that I really felt that power. You so eloquently describe kind of like the recovery process, the emotional recovery process that a lot of people go through. And sometimes it's picking up the phone, calling a friend and just like, hey, man, I need to talk through this. Yeah. And it's an ear to listen. It's an ear that will let you go through the events, play them through and map out how it impacted you. And you were able to do that on a medium that was also used to help others. That process, I encourage so many people to go through the conversation process of whatever storm that they had confiding in somebody. And luckily you had the opportunity to confide in people who are reaching out to you. Yeah. You mentioned a couple of times the priorities changing and your biggest problem being a black or brown leather jacket two days later. But here we are, whether it was days after, months, years after, or even today, how have those priorities been rearranged for you? And what are some of the habits or the intentions you have behind honoring that memory right now? What's become clear to me is that this is an experience that resonates with a lot of people. It gets some attention. And my experience with it has been so impactful in terms of focusing my efforts and my attention on the value of service, the value of doing something for other people not just because they need it, but because that begins the cycle of being the change you want to see in the world. And you never know what people are going through. And even just something as simple as a smile might change somebody's day. And so I'm starting to feel called to speak more about that message, to empower other people to reflect on ways they can serve, ways they can support their communities. And that could be in something as conventional as working through a typical nonprofit, a food bank or something along those lines. But it could be as simple as just making sure that you're a sounding board for somebody that's going through some tough times, right? I mean, a lot of people are in kind of dealing with adversity and concern coming out of a pandemic. I think we're towards the end, but we've been in this for a while and people who are, who are really down, struggling and the effort, the focus on service can be something that's very freeing. So I'm speaking more about that and helping people to kind of take their own power back to be the good story, to be the positive example. What's amazing is sometimes it doesn't take much to have a huge impact on someone else's life, even if it means going up half a flight of stairs to see if anybody's there. Right. Sometimes it's not, it doesn't always have to be this grand gesture. You don't have to wait for a burning building. There are ways to serve throughout your community. It can be serving in the course of your professional life. In my professional life, we do sales training, coaching, and a big message of that is that you are most fulfilled when you serve other people, but you also become more magnetic 
you become more influential. You become more helpful and other people see that and they gravitate towards you. It's not that that's the reason you should do it, but I look at it as a three-part cadence, right? If I'm trying to think about how to operate, start with gratitude, let that feed into love as a verb, and then abundance. Recognize that there is abundance everywhere. The way I look at that is gratitude is kind of the starting point. Let's not worry about what I don't have. Worry about what you do have. Even if it's just as simple as air to breathe, the movement of your limbs, that in and of itself is something that a lot of people are not afforded. So that becomes kind of your center point, your starting point for feeling a little more secure able to help. Once I feel a little secured, now I move into love. You hear a lot about what love means. And I look at it as love is a verb. Love is service, heightened awareness of what people need, what your gifts are, and then showing that in some way. It could be active service, could be listening, whatever you feel like your skills afford you the opportunity to do. And then finally, there's the idea of abundance. When I think about abundance, I don't necessarily mean, hey, I'm going to be rich once I do this. I just mean the idea that you'll be provided for. The universe wants you to be happy. And so releasing the attachment to outcome, I just serve somebody. I'm not worried about what I get out of it, but more likely than not, the more good you put out in the world, even if it's not reciprocated, you're living in this aura of good that you're kind of emanating. You get to operate within this new sphere that you've created. And then the cycle starts over again. Gratitude for what you feel and what you've created and how you see your impact on other people and then start that cycle all over again. Yeah. And I think that's people could stand to hear. Gratitude, love, and abundance. I love it. And John, I wish we had more time. And just the feedback and the thought process of living in that circle, starting with the gratitude. So many of us focus on what we don't have and not what we do have. But when you start with being thankful for another day, being thankful for another opportunity and using that day and opportunity to pour into others through the verb of love, like you mentioned, and creating that sphere. We, in fact, attract what we put out. So it's really the perfect way to be the magnet for the kind of life that we want to live. Second to last question, and I don't want to disrespect any of those who are still mourning those that have lost, and I don't want to disrespect the impact that day, 9-11, and such an experience had on folks. Looking back at that day 20 years ago, from your interaction with everything, as so many things happen to us in life, and we look back and they are what they are, would you change anything? That's a hard uh, question. Woo! There's a lot of things I would want to change. That's why I say no disrespect to those that are still mourning, because if we had the power to believe me, I would love to bring those people back and not have that happen. The fact that it did, and the way it's carried out 20 years later. Obviously, there's the tactical hypotheticals of how could we have alerted people and avoided that. But I look at what can I change is my reaction and how I responded. The biggest change I would make in terms of how I responded is I would have loved to have arrived at this conclusion around the value of service a little earlier. After the events, I was still struggling with what it meant, what it meant to me, what it meant to other people. I was asked to speak, but at that point, it was really just a description, kind of a forensic play-by-play -play of what happened. As I've grown older and matured and kind of seen how the world has processed the events and how the world has processed other global challenges, I wish I would have arrived at communicating this message a little earlier. It's kind of the answer I suspected is as many folks look in hindsight, it's like if only I would have found this out earlier or had this new perspective earlier. John, how can folks connect with you, follow up with you, learn more of how you're, you're living through service, through your profession, through your careers and in your everyday life? I would love to have the opportunity for our guests to connect with you. 
Yeah. John Sequeira. Last name is C-E-R-Q-U-E-I-R-A. I'm in Raleigh, North Carolina. I work for Aslan Training and Development. Probably the best way to reach out to me. You can email me at John C at AslanTraining.com. It's J-O-H-N, the letter C at AslanTraining.com. Awesome. And I'll have that in the show notes and the link there for folks to connect and get to you. Thank you for reliving, sharing the experience with us, and even more so the feedback from it and the lessons from it. Because a lot of times we've said this before on the podcast, the things we go through in life are rarely for us. It's usually for others. And the fact that you had that traumatic experience and you are now sharing it so selflessly, just wanted to make sure that I give you your flowers and let you know that it is much appreciated. Thank you, Ted. I appreciate that. Thank you. To the listeners who made it to the end, first and foremost, if anyone listening has lost a loved one in 9-11, genuine wholehearted condolences. And thank you to the men and women of law enforcement, not just in New York City, but really around the country and around the world who each and every single day put on that badge, put on that uniform, getting ready to run in the building when folks are running out. So we thank you for that service. And of course, thanking John for going up half a flight of stairs. We usually think the good we can do in the world is going to require so much of us when it could just be as little as holding the door open for somebody, texting that friend you haven't heard from for a while and saying, hey, how you doing? Are you okay? You need someone to talk to. It's these little gestures that can have such big impacts. As we've said, you know, small hinges swing big doors and the little gesture of going up half a staircase. You said her name was Tina? Yes. Just to think of that experience and, and what it meant to somebody else. And knowing that the simple decision that we decided to help, uh, when I asked John, I was like, what made you go up and what made you go decided to help? And he even said, if we weren't going to help, who would? To the listeners charging you with being those folks who are the ones to help, because if you don't help, who would? And the value of service and pouring in others, using our time here to make it a little bit better. My focus in life, when my days are done, I want to know that I made this world maybe a little bit better for at least one person. And if we all do that, just imagine the world that we could live in. So John, thank you for not just your gratitude. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your abundance. And I hope a lot of our listeners engage in that cycle. Thank you, Ted. And to the listeners making it to the end, thank you again. Don't forget, if you loved this episode, we'd really appreciate if you could share this with a friend, someone that you think can get value from it. And don't forget to leave us some feedback. Give us a rating. Let us know how we're doing. And also be sure to subscribe. You can get a new episode every single week as we continue to grow this podcast. If you love the podcast so much and you want to hear more from some of our guests, be sure to subscribe to our Patreon page for as little as $1 a month where you can hear more from John and some of our other guests as well. And as always, the way we end the episode is by saying this. Everybody wants the sunshine, but they don't want the rain. But you can't get the pleasure without a little pain. Hey.